Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Uh, we need to be flexible in our lives. Thank you that we, uh, by your grace and mercy, uh, can overcome. I thank you, Father, for your word. I thank you, Father, for the opportunity to gather here today. Uh, we pray that you would guide and direct our time. We pray, God, that you would be magnified in all that we do and that your word would go forth in power. Holy Spirit, we just uh, open our hearts unto you and ask that you would move over our lives, molding and shaping us as only you can. And that when we leave this place, we'll be more in love with you, more in love with each other, and uh, ready to set the world on fire for your glory. In Jesus' name. God is good. Hey, we're going to start a new book today. I'm excited about that. We cover the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Uh, we bounce around, not necessarily go from Genesis to Revelation, but eventually probably take me about 11 years, we will cover the entirety of the Bible. And uh, we're starting a new book today, as you can see by our new graphic, uh, the book of 1 John. I'm excited about this book. I like the Apostle John. Uh, his gospel is one of my first four favorites, I would say. <laughs> He's in the top four. And uh, no, actually, I like the gospel of John a lot. I like, he was known as the Apostle of Love. Um, if you read through his gospel, if you read through his three epistles, that is the overwhelming theme is the gospel of love or the idea of love, that we would love one another. Love is the economy of God. Love is the, I'm sorry, the currency of God. Um, gold and silver is of no value in heaven. Uh, they, they use it for asphalt up there. And so um, the, the one thing that remains from this life into the next life is love. That we would have love for one another, that, that God had love for us. As John is writing this epistle, he is 90 plus years old. Not sure. Some would say even 100 at this point, which was, you got to think about this. In that day and age, 100 years old was more than twice the normal life. The average lifespan in that day and age was somewhere between 45 and 50 years. And so John has now lived two lifetimes worth of life and is writing this. And so all the knowledge that he's gained, everything that he has learned over the course of his life, he's putting on uh, pen to paper and he is uh, sharing with us. At this point, as he's writing this letter, John is the last living eyewitness of Jesus Christ. Well, last living author that has written the word. But at this point... Peter is gone. At this point, James is gone. At this point, Paul is gone. John is the last known survivor. And it's not that they didn't try to kill him. He had been essentially sentenced to a life of martyrdom. I mean, they tried to Kentucky fry him, right? Kentucky fried John. They tried to boil him in oil, and he survived that. Okay, that didn't work, so what do we do with him now? They ship him off to this island of Patmos, essentially uh, a very small island that had a cave in it that he could dwell in, and that's where they would send prisoners. And so they ship him off to Patmos. He survives that. <laughs> and so now, near the end of his life, they're finally like, fine, we'll just let him go. And he is now doing a tour of the many uh, various churches 
giving a message, and it's a very simple message. He shares the same thing at each church. Little children, love one another. As Christ has loved you, so you ought to love one another. And that's what he shares with the churches as he makes his final uh, tour of those churches. you got to think about this. He was most likely called, when Jesus called him away from his father's fishing boat, he was probably about 15 years old. Maybe 15 to 16 years old. So for 75 plus years, this man has been walking with the Lord. I've known some Christians that have walked with the Lord for many, 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 many years. Marianne, our, our secretary at the, at the East Side Church, has been a Christian for over 50 years. And it's just the depth of faith, the depth of the knowledge of the Word of God is amazing when, when you spend that many years invested in the Lord. So imagine what John has to say. We need to remember, John, all this in intro before we even get to the scripture, John was part of the inner circle. He, he was there when Jesus said to the little girl, Tabitha, rise up, Talitha Kumai. He says, little girl, rise up from the dead. The girl that was dead, he raised from the dead. John was in the room and present at that time. When Jesus went up on the Mount of Transfiguration and he, uh, the way Pastor Dave used to say it, unzipped his human suit and showed, showed, displayed his glory, John was there. John got to see the, the, the resurrected Jesus. In the Garden of Gethsemane, in Jesus' darkest hour, John got to go further than the rest of the disciples and Jesus asked him to pray. John had been the man that he describes himself as the man who laid upon Jesus' chest um, when they were dining together. He was, they were compadres. They were, they were closer than brothers. There was a deep love. The way John describes himself in his own gospel is the disciple whom Jesus loved. And it's not to the exception of the other disciples. It's not that Jesus didn't love the other disciples. I think John was writing that and saying, Wow, I can't believe Jesus would love me. And you see this great depth of love that he has. And so now he writes to the church. He's looking at the church and he's concerned about some of the things that are happening within the church. This group of people had snuck in and were trying to pervert the way church was going. They were known as the Gnostics. And Gnosticism had kind of crept into the church. The word Gnosis, Gnosticism, where we get Gnosticism from, means to have knowledge. And the Gnostics would say, well, that whole Christianity thing's really good, and you're at a base level of Christianity, but you need to know more. There's Jesus and these other things, and we have a higher knowledge than what the disciples would have given. And so we're, we're, we're smarter people. We have a greater insight. And so they would elevate themselves, and, and the Gnostics were twisting some of the scriptures and coming up with weird doctrines. There were two main things that the Gnostics believed that just simply don't fit scripture. The first was that Jesus never really came in the flesh. They believed Jesus was a phantom, uh, a ghost, if you would. That wherever he walked, he didn't leave footprints. He he did not have physical flesh. They believed the Gnostics believed that anything material was sinful, and therefore Jesus could not have been 
material because Jesus was perfect. So part of that is right. Jesus certainly was perfect and without sin. But he also came in the flesh. This belief, if you believe that Jesus was just spiritual and that the flesh or everything material is sinful, that gives you an out to sin, doesn't it? Well, it's just my body doing it. You know, it's you know, it's just my flesh, and so I can imbibe in the flesh in any way that I want to, because Jesus came in the spirit, I'm saved in the spirit, and there is no fleshly part of my relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not me, it's my body. And so they would permit themselves to act in any way they saw fit. It was a, a loophole that they developed so that they could party on Friday night and go to church on Sunday. <clears throat> And so they would say he wasn't fully human. The second thing that they would say that of Jesus is that he is only the Christ. He is only the, he was only the Messiah from his baptism when the Holy Spirit descended until the crucifixion when he died. And that was the only time that he was the Christ. In other words, they would say that Christ Jesus was not eternal take issue with both of these things and can refute them with scripture, but it was taking the church away from the church, or the truth that had crept in. As we get into the book of 1 John, I want us to hold on to, there are four reasons that G John gives for writing this letter throughout his epistle. It's five chapters long. He gives four different reasons. If you're a note taker, I've got them here so that you can jot them down. He says specifically, I write these things so that uh, Brandon, the first one is in verse 4 of chapter 1. John's purpose for writing, go to the next one, is that we might have joy. The reason he writes is given in verse 4. Can you see that? Is that too small? First John chapter 1, verse 4, And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. He writes this epistle so that we might have joy. We can go over these afterward if I'm going, going to go too quick for you also. The second reason is that we might live a holy life. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says this, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin, so that you may live a holy life, not walk in habitual sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, so that we might have joy that we might have a holy life. The third reason is found in chapter 2, verse 26, that we might be protected. He says in verse 26, These things I've written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. He wants to set the wrong right, especially when it comes to the Gnostic teaching. And then the fourth thing is in, in chapter 5, verse 13, that we would be assured these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So he writes these things for assurance for the believer. Part of our Christian walk is, no, I'm sorry, all of our Christian walk is faith, right? And faith is being certain of the things that we're not certain of. And, and so one of the things that can creep in as we walk this road, if we're all completely honest with one another, is am I really saved? Am I really born again? 
am I really going to go to heaven? Are these things for sure? Well, John writes in verse uh, chapter 5, verse 13, so that you may know, that you may have assurance. Okay, you can flip it one more time, and that will just take us back to the original graphic. So those are the four reasons that John writes this epistle. Now, you've got to remember, John writes three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, but he also wrote the Gospel of John. Uh, so he's written four books in the New Testament. John wrote his gospel, not the epistles, John wrote his gospel to the unbeliever, those that hadn't yet placed their faith in Christ, that they might know the Christ and have eternal life. In the Gospel of John, in chapter 20, verse 31, he writes this. He says, These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So he writes the gospel to the unbeliever so that they might know the Christ and have eternal life. He writes his epistle, the letter, to the believer so that you might know the Christ and have eternal life. <laughs> so the audience is different between the gospel and the epistle, but the message is the same. That you may know the Christ and have eternal life. Yeah, like we said in verse five, or chapter 5, verse 13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. It's interesting to note, in this short epistle, John uses the phrase, we know, or you know, 24 different times. We know, you know. And you've got to remember, he's battling Gnosticism to know. He's setting the wrong right. And so he's going to use the phrase 24 different times. We know these things. We know these things. We know these things. So that we know these things. And that we're reminded of the things that we know. An example in chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love. We know. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us. <coughs> and we... <clears throat> and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So he uses we know and you know 24 different times. He also uses the phrase, if we say, that's used repeatedly also. If we say, da 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 da. If we, and he wants to combat hypocrisy with that. He wants to combat false profession with that. If we say, uh, verse 6 of chapter 1, if we say that we have fellowship with him, and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we say this, but our lives show this, we're walking in hypocrisy. That's the very different definition of hypocrisy. To say one thing and to do another. Another phrase that's used a bunch, as he. As he. In other words, and the he there is capitalized, John wants to show us that Jesus is our example. He uses the phrase as he in chapter 1, verse 7, in chapter 2, verse 6, in chapter 3, verse 3, in chapter 3, verse 7, in chapter 3, verse 23, in chapter 4, verse 17. As he. He wants to continually point us to the fact that Jesus is our example. Verse 7 of chapter 1. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The word belief is used 10 times in the epistle. The word Jesus, 11 times. These things are written 13 times. The word commandment, 14 times. The word sin, 21 times. 
Son of God, 23 times. God Himself, 57 times. Holy Spirit, 7 times. So, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, over 80 times in this five-chapter epistle. And the word knowledge, 37 times. He wants to make sure that we have the right knowledge of God, which will lead us to a deeper love of God. Make sense? Everybody tracking so far? Well, let's read a little bit of it. Sound good? Yeah. All right. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. And you see that the word, word, is capitalized there. So we're referring to a specific someone, not just a particular word. That, of course, being Jesus himself. That which was from the beginning, it says in verse 1. The word was is a phrase that you know what was means. <laughs> but the idea in the original language was that the, he always was. It wasn't, it's not just merely past tense, it's the idea of eternal past tense. That he always was. It's in a, a continual state of being. He's always existed. And John wants to show us the eternality of Jesus the Christ. He wants to combat that second form of Gnosticism that said, well, he was only the Christ from his baptism to his crucifixion, the very first thing he says is, no, he's always existed. He's always existed. You guys are familiar with John chapter 1, most likely. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He always existed. All things were made through him, speaking of Jesus, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And then chapter 1, verse 14, what we talked about at Christmas time, the Word became flesh, and God and dwelt among us, right? Emmanuel, God with us, God incarnate. The Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. John says there in verse 1 so much, and it's, it's good for us to pause a second and chew on it. That which was from the beginning, speaking of his eternality, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning Jesus. He says, Gnosticism was saying that Jesus never actually walked on the earth, that he wasn't actual flesh. John says, I got a problem with that. I saw him. I saw his footprints in the sand. I saw the way that he walked. I leaned upon his chest. He, he goes through the senses to say that, no, Jesus was in fact very real. The things that we've seen, or what does he start with? The things that we've heard. And the idea would be, and is still ringing in my ears. That's what he's saying. I heard Jesus speak, and I still remember his words. They're still ringing clearly in my ears. The things that we've seen, they're burned in my mind's eye, is the idea behind the language there. John's like, I'll never forget these things. 
How dare somebody say that Jesus didn't, in fact, walk in the flesh? He's like, I saw him. I touched him, right? The things that we looked upon, he says. And the idea there is that we gazed at him like us watching a movie. You notice that kids cannot sit still until you put on a two-hour movie, right? And then all of a sudden, they never move again. That's the idea of gazed upon. We watched him like that. I watched him in that room when he said to the little girl, rise up. I watched him on the Mount of Transfiguration, John would say, when he unzipped his flesh and showed the glory of God. I watched him heal the blind man and raise the lame man. I walked with him through the streets of Jerusalem. The thing of who we have handled, he says. No, we touched him. Imagine, John probably swatted a bee away from Jesus at some point. You know, a bee landed in Jesus' hair, and, and John fixed it. You know? They, they wrestled with one another, probably. As guys hang out, you know, it typically turns physical at some point or another, where, you know, it's, there's this machoism thing, and, and you got to see who's tougher, and so you start playing games, and you start wrestling, and somebody ends up losing an eye, and <laughs> and then it's fun with a guy with one eye. And uh, <laughs> it's all fun and games till someone loses an eye. Right? That's what mom always said. And then it's fun and games with somebody with one eye. We've handled him, we've touched him. You can't say that Jesus was a phantom, is what John is saying. You can't say, Gnostics who never saw him, I saw him, I was there. And as he is the last living apostle, he has the right to tell us and set the wrong right. John calls him the word concerning the word of life. John loves that title of Jesus. It's the word logos or logos. I'm not sure how you say it. L-O-G-O-S. And... A lot, for a lot of times, a long time in the early 80s, there were a lot of Christian bookstores named Logos or Lagos, right? You go to get the word, go get the book, you know, go get the written word. John loves that title. Here is how Strong's Concordance would help to define the word Lagos in reference to Jesus. It denotes the essential word of God, Jesus Christ, the personal wisdom and power in union with God. His minister in creation and government of the universe, the cause of all the world's life, both physical and ethical, which for the procurement of man's salvation put on human nature in the person of Jesus the Messiah, the second person of the Godhead, and shone forth conspicuously from his words and his deeds. A lot of gobbledygook, you've got to kind of sort through that. The Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, we read in John chapter 1, verse 14. He is God incarnate. A Greek philosopher named somebody, Heraclitus, H-E-R-A, Heraclitus, thank you, Heraclitus, sounds right, a Greek philosopher named Phil, first used the term Lagos somewhere around 600 B.C. to designate the divine reason or plan which coordinates a changing universe. 
he, they, he first used the word logos, 600 years before Christ, logos, to define, to designate the divine reason or plan which coordinates a changing universe. And certainly Jesus changed the universe when he came in flesh, yes? Good definition. Verse 2. We're only going four verses today. We're like, dude, it's already 10 till 12, and I'm hungry. We're not going very far today. Verse 2. The life was manifested, and we have seen, and bear witness, and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested to us. Verse 2 is a parenthetical thought. If you're reading it in the New King James, you have a, 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 a couple dashes to remind us. This is the word of life, and, and speaking of that word of life, it's the life that was manifested to us. What's that word? We don't use that every day, do we? The word manifested. We've got to define it, just so we make sure we all understand it. The word manifested is to make visible or known that which was hidden or unknown. So when Jesus was manifested, he's making that, making it visible that which was unknown or hidden previously. When a ship pulls into harbor, one of the first pieces of paper that they ask for, the port authority would ask for, is the manifest. The ship's manifest. In other words, I don't know what you have on your ship. I can't see it. But if you give me the paperwork, you will be telling me. You'll make, make, be making me know what is hidden on your ship. Of course, that's if the manifest is true. You know? And so that's the idea. The ship's manifest. It's to make known that which is hidden. Well, Jesus was manifested to us. He became flesh. He had always been. He's eternal. He goes all the way back. There is no beginning for him. But he was not known unto the world until he came as a babe in a manger, until he came to this earth 2,000 years ago. That which we have seen, verse 3, and heard, we declare to you. We saw him, we heard him, and now we're heralding it unto you. We're sharing this gospel with you, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. As we look at John, and look at the experiences that he got to experience, and the life that he got to live, how he walked with Jesus, we might have the tendency to say, well, yeah, of course he believed. Look at all the stuff, that, look at the, look at all the stuff he got to live. No wonder he has that kind of depth of faith. No wonder he has that kind of fellowship with Jesus. He got to be there. We might have the tendency to say, well, I will never have the depth of fellowship that John had because I didn't get to see him. I didn't get to touch him. I didn't get to hear the physical words hit my ears. If I had been there like John was there, I might be an apostle too. I might have the depth of faith he has, if I'd seen, if I had heard, if I looked upon, if I had handled, then I might have that kind of depth of faith. And verse 3 is telling us, no. No. Our fellowship is the same as that of John's. Our fellowship with God is of the Holy Spirit. It's of the new birth. It has nothing to do with the flesh. It doesn't come from the flesh. It's not that we've tasted. It's not that we've seen or heard or touched in the way that John did. But because we have the same Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts that John had dwelling in his heart, we have the same fellowship with God as him. 
key word, fellowship. We need to underline it, we need to define it, which we're going to do here in a minute. I want to make sure that we have a firm grasp on it before we head into next week's teaching. And here's our first reason for him writing this epistle, verse 4. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. He doesn't say that your happiness may be full. There's a designation there. There's a difference there. He uses the word joy, and we'll talk about that. John's saying, don't think because you live 2,000 years after Jesus Christ that we are at a disadvantage in our faith. We have the same fellowship that John had. So he's saying, let that fill you with joy. Let that help you over to overcome. It is fellowship with God that brings us true joy. Think about the first miracle of Jesus, which is what? Water to wine. Water to wine, right. John turns, Jesus turns water into wine at the marriage supper. It's only recorded in, God, in John's gospel. In fact, I want to look at it real quick. So flip over to John chapter 2. We're going to read a few verses, 10 verses, just to familiarize ourselves with the story. This is Jesus now, somewhere around 30 years old, making his ministry now public. This is the way that he does it. This is the first miracle that Jesus performs. John chapter 2, the Gospel of John, verse 1. On the third day... There was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Mary was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Mom, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Mary wants to get this thing going. He, she knows, she's held in her heart the things that were promised to her before Jesus was born. And she's like, let's see this public ministry get started. She's almost the catalyst. And he's like, my hour hasn't yet come. But she's going to be persistent, as a mother can be persistent. In verse 5, his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you to do, do it. Now, there were six water pots of stone. You need to understand, the water pots stood about, oh, 60 inches tall, were somewhere around this big round, and carried roughly 90 gallons of water. Six of them. Large amount of water here, okay? Now there were six set, six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, after a wedding feast, they would have a, the purification process, containing 20 or, I'm sorry, 20 or 30 gallons apiece, it tells us specifically there. So 30 gallons times six, 180 gallons of water. Okay. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, hey, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then you bring out the mad dog. <laughs> then the inferior, right? 
Get everybody wasted first, and then you can bring out the cheap stuff. You have kept the good wine until now, the stuff Jesus turned the water into. This, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and, Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Jesus changed his water into wine. And it's not just grape juice here, guys. This is genuine wine. It, the, the, the master of the ceremony, the, the, the host, the one that had put the party together, the, the, this would have been a, uh, an educated man in servitude. Uh, think of a fine server and how well they know their menu. Says, hey, you know, everybody brings out the good wine first and then when they're all tanked, that's when you bring out the cheap stuff. You, you save the good stuff to the last. This is genuine, a genuine bona fide miracle. And what we need to remember in Jesus performing this as his first miracle is he's telling us something. Anywhere in scripture, wine denotes joy. Wine denotes joy throughout the scriptures. It's a, it's a symbol for joy. And so as it is a symbol of joy, John writes these things that our joy may be complete he tells us in verse 4 of the epistle. Jesus' first miracle was to turn water, which is the symbol of life, into wine, which is the source, or life. So we go from life to joy-filled life in him. Make sense? Water to wine. From life to joy-filled life. Now, combine that with what we talked about last week. Right? We talked about Zephaniah last week. I didn't plan this. God just said, hey, go into 1 John. Okay. Do you remember the phrase from last week, sitting on the leaves? And I had to explain what that meant. That we, 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 they didn't want the wine to sit on the leaves. In other words, as wine was fermenting, the sediment would settle to the bottom. The dregs was what we would call it today, would settle to the bottom. And the winemaker, in order to keep the wine from souring, would take it from one container to another, leaving the dregs in the bottom of the old one, pouring the wine into a new one, allowing it to settle again. And he would do that up to seven or eight different times in order to purify the water. And what God was saying through Zephaniah that we read last week was, Christian, I don't want you to settle on your lees so that your life may become bitter. Because that's what settling on the dregs would happen. It would make the wine sour. So Jesus comes, he performs the miracle, changing water into wine, taking life and making it joy-filled life. And he says, I don't want you to settle on your leaves. I'm going to give you the best wine you could possibly have. I'm going to give you the best life that you can have. And sometimes that means as the vine dresser, as the winemaker, Jesus is going to have to empty us out into a new container. To keep us from settling on the dregs and becoming bitter and sour, he has to turn our world upside down so that we can be purified. So that we can have pure joy. God will pour us out to keep our joy fresh, to keep us from getting bitter, pouring us out causes us to get better. 
when we grasp that truth, that the pouring out that happens in our lives is for the intent and purpose of keeping our joy, for the intent and purpose of making us better, then we can embrace the trials of life because we know that God is going to use them to mature us, to give us that joy. So, James chapter 1, consider pure joy whenever you suffer trials of any kind. You know the testing of your faith uh, shall produce perseverance. Perseverance shall finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Embrace the trials of life. That sounds counterintuitive. As humans, we don't want to embrace the trials of life. We want to circumnavigate the trials of life. There's a trial. Right? And Facebook's wondering where I went. We, we just go around the trial. That's, yay, though I walk around the valley of the shadow of death. I don't have to fear evil that way. No. When we recognize that Christ came, that we might have our joy full, then we can embrace the difficult times of life. The season we just walked through, Christmas, Joys ever present, right? It's it's con continually on our lips. The kids get excited. There's happiness in the air. Yes, it's hustle and bustle. Yes, it's a stressful time. But we sing the song, "Joy to the world, the Lord is come." Right? And we're excited. Yes, joy to the world. Yes. And then come January first, put Christmas away, and with it, put our joy away. You ever notice from January first until? Like spring is a difficult time of year. There's people that suffer, it's known as seasonal affective disorder, where the, there's this less amount of light, you know, the time of year that it is, we have less daylight during the year, and it actually impacts their mood. Well, on top of that, you got winter. On top of that, you got, there's nothing to celebrate, you know. Valentine's Day is a Hallmark Day. They created it just to get you to spend money, you know. It just there's not a whole lot going on in life and our joy can wane and God says no when you put the Christmas things away don't put the joy away let's keep it out let's let the even the difficult time of February 3rd or 10th or January 27th whatever the date if it's a difficult time if it's a difficult season chances are God's pouring you into a new container so that you're not becoming bitter, you're becoming better. Combine that with what Jesus said at the Last Supper. Luke chapter 22. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, a cup of wine, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. The wine represents his blood being shed for us. It's the new way to come unto God. That's what the word covenant means. The new way to come unto God. And in that cup, we find our true joy. That our sins are forgiven. That we walk restored relationship with God. That we walk in that restored relationship with God. The third cup, the cup he lifted, and I share this when I share, we share communion together. 
the Seder meal, there are four different cups of wine. Each different cup represents something else. The cup, it says specifically, he took the cup after supper. That tells us it's the third cup of the Seder meal. The third cup of the Seder meal is the cup of fellowship. Koinonia. Okay? And it's in that cup, in that, that wine, that wine we have a new way to come unto God. We have fellowship with him that our joy may be complete. I told you to underline the word fellowship. It's translated from the word koinonia. It's K-O-I-N-O-N-I-A. Koinonia. That's our word. And we would translate the word fellowship, but I want to make sure that we understand. It's not just that you and I would hang out to watch the championship games today. But if you're into that, cool. You know, if you want to hang out, you know, it's not that we would go out on a Saturday night and enjoy dinner together. That's part of what koinonia is. That's part of what the fellowship is. But the word koinonia specifically means to share all things in common. It was first introduced to us in the book of Acts when the disciples and apostles sold everything they had and brought all their resources together. That's koinonia. It's to say, what's mine is yours. You have a need for something, and I have something, take something. We are a family together, and, and there, are no, there are no barriers between us to share all things in common. And what we get to share with Jesus is his joy. We need to remember, joy is not the same thing as happiness. Happiness is based on circumstances. And life is a roller coaster. And the ride up can be happy. But sometimes there's the ride down and the twist and the turn and the ouch, that hurts. Those things take our happiness. They don't take our joy. Joy is not based on circumstances like happiness is. As we walk this life, just one other thought. God manifests his love for us in different ways so that our joy might continue. In other words, think of it this way. KK, at seven years old, would come up and say, Dad, I need a hug. And we would cuddle, and I'd put my arm around her, and we'd sit down on the couch together and hold her tight to me, and, and she just needed some dad time. KK, at 17, doesn't ask for hugs very often. <laughs> but KK sees Dad get up and work every day. And KK sees Dad write out the bills. And KK sees food in the cabinet. And KK sees rides to dance five days a week. And she knows that her daddy loves her. I've, I've changed the way I manifest my love to her doesn't mean I love her any less, but just so that she might know that she's loved, I show it in different ways. Same is true of all my kids, I just use her as an example. The same is true of you and I in Christ. Sometimes when you're a new babe in Christ, you get the tinglies, right? Oh, the Holy Spirit 
hair on your neck stands up and you know that the Holy Spirit is there. And as you walk with Christ, that doesn't happen as often. Or maybe it does for some of you, but it doesn't for me. I don't, I don't get that Holy Ghost sensation or whatever you want to call it, you know, this overwhelming feeling of the presence of the Lord as often as I used to. But as I study the depth of the Word and I look at the way John has written out the fact that He loves us and His fellowship, He's given us fellowship and brought us into Koinia, there's a, there's a, a different appreciation, there's a different way that God manifests His love to me the longer I walk with Him. Again, the first of four reasons that John writes this epistle, these things I write to you that your joy us to hold on to that, and so we're not going to go any farther today as we go out from this place. And to consider that joy is not just emotive, uh, emotive, it's not just an emotion, but it is something that carries us through all the circumstances of our life. And that when we recognize that God has his best intention for us, then even in the difficult times of life, joy can still be present. Make sense? Amen? Amen. All right, we'll close, we'll close there for today. Let's stand, let's close in prayer. The rest of the chapter is great, too. And I, Joe, Joe Foch, the guy I listen to most often when I'm preparing my messages, I pulled up his sermon on 1 John chapter 1. It was an hour and 10 minutes long. I said, well, I usually go stretch it out even more than him, so I was like, i got to break this chapter. <laughs> otherwise, we'll be here way past one o'clock. So, uh, so we'll pick up the rest of the chapter next week. God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the Apostle John, late in life, writing these words unto us, little children. I write these words that you may love one another and that you may love God. And that's what we want to do, Lord. We know that's your currency. We know that there are that you hold nothing of greater value in your kingdom than love. And that the world would know that we're your followers, we are your disciples by the way that we have love for one another. And so I pray that you would fill us with your joy, that we wouldn't be bitter, that we wouldn't be sour, even in the midst of the trials of life, Lord, that we would continually display that we are okay, that we would recognize that even in the difficult things, that they are only temporary in comparison with the fellowship that you offer us through the shedding of your blood, which is eternal. Help us to maintain that perspective, Lord. Help us to sing joy to the world, for you have come, not just at Christmas time, but throughout the year. Not just with our words, but with our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.